Vivekananda Siddhi Circle wishes you all a happy Holi. We begin this evening's program with the invocation. May I request all of you to kindly stand up in your seats. Om Sahana Vavatu Sahana Unattu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvinavahitamastumavitvishavahai Om Shanti 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 Om Atatoma Sadgamaya Samasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Amritamgamaya Om Shanti 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 Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudasyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavasishyate Om Shanti 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 Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhinaha Sarve Santu Niramaya Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu Makashid Dukha Bhagavet Om Shanti 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 On behalf of Vivekananda City Circle, I extend a hearty welcome to Dr. David Frawley, Dr. Dwaratnath Reddy, C.S. Ram Mohan, other distinguished guests in the audience, and my fellow IITians. As a prelude to the talk by Dr. Frawley, let me read out a passage, The Heritage of the Hindus, by Swami Ranganathananda, the President of the Ramakrishna Martin Mission. The Smritis come and go. How many Smritis were promulgated and set aside in India? Today, all the old Smritis are abrogated if they go against a national democratic constitution. We have the courage to change our Smritis and develop a new Smriti in tune with contemporary thinking. This is the great idea in India, social change. And the teachings, which are eternal, are reformulated according to the changed circumstances. For that, you need great teachers, for they have the spiritual knowledge and authority to do this. That authority does not come from the status like that of a bishop or a pope or a priest or any traditional religious authority. It comes from spiritual realization. It comes from infinite compassion in the heart of a spiritual teacher. That is how new Smritis come into being. India held fast 
to this ideal and the result is that from the vedic age up to this modern age many changes have taken place in religion in society in our country and yet we are the same we are eternal and yet changing all the time that is the gist of the very term sanatana dharma india is ever aging but never old it is because of this adjustment that takes place at particular period this is the india that is taking shape today in a new setting the same ancient india but adopting necessary changes much dead wood is being cut and removed this courage to change smriti and that to peacefully is purely a hindu heritage no other religion has shown that courage in all other religions smritis are all in all they cannot be touched and if any reformer attempts to change them he is persecuted and killed but we say change the outdated smriti and form a new smriti if it does not fit us now today's program we'll first have sri ram mohan introducing the two distinguished speakers of the evening then we'll have dr sole speaking to us after that dr dwarak nadridi will add on to that for a few minutes and then we can have a common question and answer session and discussion and after that we'll have a book sales of dr sole's book outside the auditorium may now request sri ram mohan financial advisor to the southern railway to introduce dr sole and dr dwarkna reddy namaste to all of you as arun has said today is indeed a holy day holy in the sense of english also because amidst us today we have got to persons who have got holiness within them that the heart vibrates with the cosmic consciousness it is said in the kono parishad pratibodha viritam matham amrutatvam hi vindate that which vibrates each moment within us knowing this one cause causes the bridge of mortality into immortality this is the teaching of the great seers we belong to a civilization which does not merely say give everything and go to the forest this is a civilization the vulcan song of the indian civilization which saw divine in everything and everything in the divine ீசாவசியமிதம்ிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ்ரிவ
today we are amid, got amidst us two great exponents of Indian Vedanta, Dr. David Crowley, the director of the American Institute of Vedic Studies, who, is, who needs no introduction to the enlightened audience of Vekanda Study Circle. He is true Amadeva. His name is Amadeva Shastri, the Hindu name. If you, you will recollect that this Rishi Vamadeva is very unique in the annals of Indian philosophy. He is the one who knew everything Vedantic, everything philosophical, everything cosmic when he was in the womb of his mother. That is Vamadeva, totality of Vamadeva, the Rishi. So this Vamadeva is the one who in the womb of Western Occidental civilization knew everything about Vedanta and then came out as a very bright shining child the spread, resplendent spread the message of Vedanta to the West and reinterpreted to the East. His books are legion. I am the one, one of, one of the several which have been fairly enthused by his writing. Awake Arjuna, Awake Bharat, Arayus Arjuna. So many books. His very recent book, The Vedantic Meditation, to a pearl in the diadem of mother philosophy. He is well known for his clarity and he is a truly not mere writer. He is a spiritual man to the core. His very presence radiates the ancient Rishi wisdom. I am very happy that we have come here to enthuse the youngsters of uh, this area. And the second speaker today is no less a brilliant person. She is Dwaraknath Reddy. He is the true Rishi in the sense after having achieved a spectacular success in the material field as a founder and the chairman of the Nutrin and the group of companies. He has retired and renounced when they are living a truly Vedantic life, finding oneness with the universe. They are beautiful, clear exponents of Indian philosophy. And uh, his, right, his very words vibrate with the truth in them, the clarity of expression, the stream of consciousness flowing through them. And uh, very chiseled words. Each today, uh, all of you may be knowing, we have got a conference, an international conference on the facets of consciousness, known as Conscious 2000, where very great speakers from all over the world have participated. Tomorrow it is also there from 9 o'clock to 6 o'clock. There is a great experience of speaking tomorrow like uh, Dr. David Foley, then uh, so many, Dr. Sowarsky, the psychiatrist from USA. Uh, many of them are there. So I, I, I would invite all of you to come there to the Triple Helix Auditorium from non-morning 9 o'clock. We are going to a real feast for a thinking mind. Today Dr. Dwaragnath Reddy spoke and we are fascinated audience to listen to him in rapt attention. The great flow of words and the mastery of the man and meet meeting and the clarity of exposition. He is a great author. His books are very well known, Physics of Karma, the Father Buja, and very beautiful books and a man who lives his words. So we will have the first lecture by Vamadeva David Trolley, followed by Short talk by Mr. Dwaragnath Reddy, then we will have cross pollination of ideas with these two great trees of Indian wisdom. Thank you. I will invite Vamadeva to speak.
Namaste. So, I was given a subject that is so broad that I can tackle it from almost any direction, or we could say it could be tackled from almost any direction. So, I would like to take it from a couple of points. One, I think it's important to take a new look at the characteristic civilization of this region. What is not just called the civilization of India, but the civilization of Bharata, or what is called the Bharatiya Sanskriti. Because we live in a time where civilization and culture is being defined from one corner of the world. And of course, that corner of the world is America. And the American idea of civilization is very different than the Bharatiya idea of civilization. It is so different that the Western thinkers and the Western promoters of civilization have neither understood nor adequately estimated the civilization of India. They don't, the British were in this country for what, two or three hundred years, and yet they failed to understand the basic orientation of Vedas, Vedanta, the meaning of this culture at all. So what's happening today is you are first of all now being introduced to your culture or civilization from an alien point of view, with alien ideas and values, and also with a great deal of distortion in what you have been taught. So most of what you think about this Bharatiya culture, or at least a significant amount of it, is actually not true and needs to be re-examined. I'm speaking specifically of the historical uh, situation. The history of this country from Vedic times is still being defined by a largely colonial model that fails to understand the indigenous civilization of the region and also the continuity of culture that has been established here. Today there is what they call a clash of culture or clash of civilization going on in the world, but there is essentially a an attempt of one culture to dominate and overcome the rest. We live in the era of globalization, but actually, if we look at globalization, it's simply, most of the time, just a new form of colonialism. I remember watching an American television program a couple of years ago on globalization, and they showed young people wearing blue jeans working on the stock market, drinking coffee in Singapore, Bombay, Africa, South America. And I said, this isn't globalization, this is the entire world being turned into American or the Western model of civilization. So what is the Bharatiya model and how does it fit in? We should also remember that each culture rewrites history in its own image. So the history of India that you see in your textbooks is not a scientific fact like the law of gravity. It is simply a certain view that reflects 
a largely Western and to a great extent uh, materialistic uh, orientation. Now, if we go back to the roots of civilization in this region, our most important text is still the Vedas, particularly the Rig Veda, and the whole continuity of teachings from the Vedas to the Upanishads to the Gita, this whole movement of Veda to Vedanta. Now, most of you have been taught to have some respect for the Vedantic philosophy. At the same time, most of you have been taught that the Vedas are some foreign intrusion of nomads and invaders from Central Asia. Now, I don't want to go into this subject in great detail tonight. We have a conference in Hyderabad and in Bangalore dealing with this issue. But as the current archaeology stands, we can trace an indigenous development of civilization in this subcontinent from 7000 BC, which is this place called Mergar in Pakistan. Then there was a continual development of an archaeological record of the characteristic agriculture, domestication of plants, development of the urban and cultural factors that have then come to associated to be associated with India. And in this ancient culture, it was centered around a river called the Saraswati River that used to flow from the Ambala Hills all the way into the run of Kutch. And this was then the largest and most central river of the time. And this was the great Saraswati River of Vedic fame. So we would like to recall this ancient civilization of India, the Saraswati culture, 80% of the ancient urban ruins of Harappa, Harappa, what are called now Harappan sites or Hindu sites, are on the dried banks of the Saraswati. And this ancient civilization came to an end around 2000 to roughly 1900 BC, when owing to various geological changes, the Saraswati region dried up, and then there was a gradual relocation of populations. So we have the Vedic literature on the Saraswati shifting to the Puranic literature on the Ganga. And we find a number of texts like Mahabharata in which part of it is on the Saraswati and part of it is on the Ganga. In fact, the whole Kurukshetra region of the Mahabharata war was along the great plain of the Saraswati but at a time when the river was already in decline and largely not flowing. This urban culture, now called Harappa, but as I say, we could call it the Saraswati if we want to be more accurate, was the largest urban civilization in the ancient world, particularly in the third millennium BC, but it could have also gone back further than that. Recent archaeology shows that Writing and other factors came as early in India as they did in Egypt, Sumeria, and other cultures. And in this culture of ancient India was so large and extensive at that time, you could put all of Egypt, all of Mesopotamia, Sumeria into it and still find extra room left over. So India represents, from this view, something we could call the cradle of civilization. But so far... It's the cradle of civilization that has not yet been entirely acknowledged. 
and this is largely because the Western mindset, by its traditional habitual patterns, first looks to the biblical aspect of the Near East, even though the Judaic tradition was rather a very minor tradition in the ancient world of that part, and also then to the Greco-Roman development that came later. Neither of these developments had any significant impact on India, not until the uh, British uh, period. Now, if we also look at this Western view of civilization and culture, we have, first of all, the regular scientific view that civilization develops through technology and the manipulation of the material world and the development of science. Secondly, we have the Western religious view that uh, civilization develops through some inspired prophet or savior who receives some message from God who then passes it on to humanity. Now, the Indian tradition is rather different than the Western tradition, both the scientific side of it and the religious side of it. And often the very terminology that comes from the West like religion and God are not entirely, or scripture are not really appropriate to what has gone on in this country. Now, going back to the Vedic view, we see that there was a culture of the Rishis that developed the civilization of this region. And who were the Rishis? They were great enlightened souls who through their own tapas, their own sadhana, were able to reach a state of consciousness where they could bring in a cosmic law, where they could bring in a higher awareness and use that as the foundation of civilization and create a civilization where moksha, or liberation of the spirit, was the highest goal, not the material development as the highest goal and not salvation to a monotheistic God as the highest goal in fact there's one very interesting thinker in Delhi his name is J.C. Kapoor Uh, he's a well-known person in the uh, educational and also foreign affairs field he does a big foreign affairs journal and he made a very interesting observation in this regard that the thrust of western civilization today even in, even in its materialism and consumerism, is still following an essentially monotheistic model, which is to get everybody to do the same thing, look the same way, have the same basic uh, values, and be, a, and be conditioned along the same line. When we go back to the Vedas themselves, we start out with a model of unity, but unity in multiplicity, in which there is a natural pluralism, ekam satvitra bahuda sadanti, that which is the one truth the sages declare in many different ways. And this whole concept of dharma, it is a civilization of dharma. There is a certain natural and universal law. It is not the fiat, it is not the uh, order of some god on high it doesn't belong to a particular individual or culture 
There are certain universal laws like law of karma. There are certain universal principles like satya, ahimsa. The foundation is of dharma. It is not of one teacher versus another, one sect versus another. So this type of emphasis on dharma, this emphasis on spirituality and moksha, and this pluralistic approach has characterized the civilization of this region and this civilization continues to be under siege today at the same time it is undergoing some revival and gaining some recognition uh, worldwide so it's an interesting transitional phenomenon of course if you go to the west the people who honor India honor India for its great spiritual traditions, yoga, Vedanta, Buddhism, etc. And yet in India, you have a situation where these very traditions are not honored and where there is also an attempt to discredit them as not being legitimately representing the civilization of the region. A very unfortunate thing happened in modern India. I'm still not certain exactly why. But at the time of the independence of the country, the intelligentsia of India, particularly the English language intelligentsia of India, followed, first of all, a Marxist socialist model that rejected the Dharmic roots of the culture and that was particularly anti-Hindu in its orientation. In fact, rather than the colonial rule leaving India, it kept on its incarnation in the form of the intelligentsia of the country. Even Nehru uh, uh, defined himself as the last Englishman and he looked to the London School of Economics, which was a predominantly socialist school, uh, to structure the country. He also looked to a socialist influence and the Soviet model, five-year plans to develop the country. And he refused to change the textbooks from the British colonial model. In fact, your essential textbooks in India are essentially the same as they were before the independence of the country. And they're teach, still teaching you to a great extent that if there's any unity to this country, it was invented by the British. And even if there was any religion called Hinduism, it was because the British were able to make some sense of all the different sex that you find in this country. Now, this is not only wrong, we could almost say it's totally silly. Because this culture has preserved the civilization longer than any other country, and it has maintained the continuity of its civilization better than any other country. I'll give you a simple example of this. You have a text called the Mahabharata. What does Mahabharata mean? It also means Great Bharat, Great India. By even the most restricted accounts, it's more than 2,000 years old. And yet you will find in the Mahabharata all the main deities, practices, and philosophies that have come to characterize the Hindu tradition. And you'll also find all aspects of the country mentioned from Afghanistan to Assam 
from Sri Lanka to Tibet. We have no equivalent epic called Great Europe. In fact, even today, Europe, for all its colonial glory, is much more fragmented than India, and there doesn't seem to be much hope of it united, uniting even over the next few decades. Even China, which has maintained a political identity better than any other region of the world, has not maintained that type of cultural identity. And I don't think you will find anywhere a book that has so much scope of spirituality, diversity of practices, and approaches to all levels of life and culture. And yesterday, uh, this civilization isn't understood even here. The other problem we have today is that this Marxist intelligentsia then allied itself with various other external forces, missionary, religions, and there is still this siege of Hinduism going on within India itself, and even there is new movements towards conversion going on in this country. There's another very good journalist writing today, Francois Gauthier, and he made a very interesting remark. When the English newspapers in India talk about Hindu gurus, they talk about them as kind of these, you know, charlatanistic godmen and cult figures. But when they talk about the Pope, they call him Holy Father. At the same time, we see here a revival of interest in Vedic disciplines, yoga, Vedanta, Vedic philosophy. We find perhaps even more of that in overseas Hindus and even more of that, you know, for example, in America, yoga has become fairly popular. So there is something of of a revival going on at the same time, but at the same time, the clash, the movement towards conversion goes on. Even Dr. Subramaniam was telling us that in Tamil Nadu, they have now created academies of Bharat Natyam dance that are totally Christian, in which the traditional dance is taught, but all for the glory of Jesus. This is a process called uh, inculturalization in the religious uh, tradition. You go into a country, you take on a form that's appealing to the members of that country for conversion purposes, and then you undermine the culture and the civilization for this purpose. So what has made India great is this pluralistic approach to spirituality and the spiritual approach to life. Now, I'm not saying that you should become prejudicial or bigoted or not open to truth when it comes from other areas. If Christian, Islamic, any other group wants to be part of the pluralism of this culture, that's fine. They should be welcome. But if they want to exclusively take it over and push out the pluralism that's characterized this culture, then they should be opposed. And what we have today, because of the freedom of democracy, which is fine, Exclusive ideologies can promote themselves if they have money and they can be given the freedom to do that. 
recently when the Pope was here there was some debate on this issue of conversion and the Catholic Church said that conversion is the right of the individual it's part of individual it's part of you know, your individual freedom freedom of choice now this is a very curious statement because it's coming out of a group that does not believe in pluralism it believes in only one path so you have an authoritarian institution using freedom as a means of, a, of promoting authoritarianism you know if people are sincerely interested in spirituality and religion why don't, why, why don't we just all get together and discuss things you know, why doesn't the Pope invite the Swamis to come, to come together the Swamis, the saints, the teachers of all religions to come together to discuss things to develop you know, an association to develop uh, friendship to respect their views and have a commonality of approach that would be the simple way to do it no, instead they hold to promoting their agenda and then ignoring the rest of what is going on in the country so this civilization has preserved certain things for example if you look at ancient Egypt even Greece you find certain philosophies you find certain religious practices certain mystical approaches that once exist once existed you find them still going on in this country today so it's very important to preserve the essence of this civilization India doesn't need to become another United States another Japan another Soviet Union another Saudi Arabia and it certainly doesn't need to become another Afghanistan and Pakistan as it's standing today is moving close to becoming another Afghanistan it needs to restore the characteristic civilization of this region which is one of tolerance but not one of apologetic appeasement which is what tolerance is often confused with in this country today you should be proud of your traditions you should learn to study them you should realize you should learn how to adapt them in the modern age one thing that happens in India a lot there's a lot of a, a criticism of the Manu Smriti as if this Manu Smriti was the most characteristic teaching in the Hindu tradition that would be like uh, judging Christianity today by the law code of Charlemagne and it would be, it would be like judging Islam by the Sharia these are medieval law codes the Manu Smriti as a modern law code doesn't look particularly good no medieval law code looks particularly good the monosmithy as a medieval law code doesn't necessarily look so bad uh, either you know it's a medieval law code I mean in the context of that type of culture and civilization and as Arun was saying earlier the smithies can change the smithies do change and have always changed the Dharma Shastras which dealt with society have always been changed and adopted and even the monosmithy was never a last word it was just certain guidelines of which there were various opinions and reflecting the needs of that particular period of society for example in the medieval period 
the culture was often under siege. So there were lots of rules to protect women so that they wouldn't go out alone. If you take that statement out of context, then it appears that women had no freedom at all. If you understand the context, then the situation changes. I've also looked at textbooks of Hinduism in the West, and when they discuss Hinduism, they go back to the Manusmriti, or they study some obscure Brahmana, and talk about the Ashwamedha, and how many horses might have been sacrificed in the ancient world, or they might bring up something about uh, Sati. They don't bring in Ramana Maharshi, uh, Sri Aurobindo, or if they do bring in some modern gurus, they try to discredit them as various forms of uh, cult uh, figures. Now, this situation is also changing in some areas. There are certain scholars and thinkers that are more open, but these will always be people who have some sort of spiritual awareness on their side. For example, there's a Professor Klostermeyer in Canada who did a very interesting book called The Survey of Hinduism, which is much better than the books, most of the books on Hinduism you have in India, particularly the ones done for the schools and the universities. But he was someone who was able to appreciate figures like Ramana Maharshi or Anandamoy Ma. Now, as we live in this computer age and this information age and this media age, it is very easy to promote distortions. At the same time, India is in a situation where you have the computer and the internet expertise. You can challenge a lot of these distortions, and a lot of these distortions are rather superficial. It's interesting to note the Kumbh Mela. You know, in England, the Kumbh Mela received a lot of positive coverage. After the news, they often had uh, information about it. The American media generally ignored it, and they brought out some very silly stories. For example, when they talked about the Kumbh Mela, they had to mention that in the 18th century, some of the sects within the Kumbh Mela fought, and so many people were killed, as if that was relevant news today. Now, if we look at the deeper currents in this culture, we see that there is a lot of survival of the tradition. How many people went to the Kumbh Mela? You know, compare this to any other culture. You know, in America, people don't go to church. I don't think you've gotten a thousand. You'll get some for the fundamentalist Christian rallies. You may get a few thousand people, you know, for the Billy Graham rallies. But you don't have that type of devotion. You don't have that type of spectacle in any other religion. And it's interesting to note because according to a lot of the Western thinkers, Hinduism is not even a religion. It's just a bunch of sects. If that's the case, what is this Kumbh Mela about? What other religion can produce that type of gathering or that type of uh, situation? Now, in this current era in which we live, science is the predominant force, and yet we're also developing a new openness towards spirituality. Unfortunately, often it is the regressive forms of Western culture that come to India. For example, today, the main Christian groups operative in India, the evangelical Christians, they are generally rejected 
criticized and even ridiculed in America. For example, the Southern Baptists, which are the most active of the evangelical groups, brought out in America some handbooks criticizing not only Hinduism as a pagan and destructive religion, they even went after uh, Judaism. In fact, Buddhism, they went after everything else. So a lot of the newspapers in America just simply said, you know, this is silly and outdated. So when these people come to this country, you should recognize where they're coming from. They do not represent the West, and they generally don't represent the more open or the more progressive elements within Christianity itself. Even the Catholic Church is generally representing a regressive form of uh, Christianity. Uh, For example, if you look at the most Catholic countries in the world, the Western world, they're all the poor countries. The countries of Latin America, South America. The most Catholic and Christian country in Asia is the Philippines, which has never been the most progressive or the most modern country in the region. The West developed the positive aspects of its civilization because it introduced freedom and broke the rule of these authoritarian ideologies. That is the model that needs to be followed. Unfortunately, the West didn't have the spiritual model of freedom or the understanding of how to approach the spiritual life on an individualized basis. Why are there so many deities in the Hindu tradition? Is it because they can't figure out there's some unity behind this universe? It's serious. Hindus are criticized for two things. One, you have too many gods. That's a big problem. But worse than that, you believe everything is God. That's probably the reason why you have too many gods, because everybody, everything can become a god. But you can't have it both ways. If you believe in, if you believe everything is God, you can't be called a polytheist. Polytheist. That is a totally different view. Now, you've also been taught to look at your spiritual tradition as something backward, and the religions of the West as something enlightened. I won't go into that in any detail, but I think it's fairly easy to see that the spiritual aspects of consciousness, awareness, the pursuit of the infinite, the eternal, uh, even what modern science is doing, uh, looking to the full extent of the universe, is more in harmony with the views and the Vedas and Vedanta than it is with this kind of biblical revelation idea of the world. How many have looked at this text called the Yoga Vasishta? You should all read Yoga Vasishta. Because everything you might think about telepathy, about transcending time and space, time travel, uh, every, every aspect of the occult, spirituality, uh, all these things that the uh, yeah, artificial intelligence, you know, change of, you know, change of species, other worlds, everything is there in a text that is hundreds, if not thousands of years old. So as we move into this new century, we're coming into an era where the Vedic and Vedantic spirituality is much more reflected in the futuristic trends that are going on. So I think it's very important at this stage 
for India to undergo a renewal culturally and spiritually. And this is only possible by honoring and respecting the traditional roots of civilization in the region, which is this Rishi culture. And this doesn't mean you just simply mechanically follow Vedas and Upanishads. You know, you have this very important dietary mantra. And dietary says, Dio yo na prachodayat. May that divine sun impel, direct, enlighten, enliven the ghi, the buddhi, the higher intelligence. That is still the call and the need. There needs to be the awakening of that higher mind, that higher intelligence, that deeper discrimination. As, as a species, we need to recognize our spiritual heritage, our connection with the Rishis, the great yogis behind humanity, the spiritual goal of life, the real movement of life, which is the evolution of consciousness, not just simply an historical development of civilization in one form or another. And that energy, that impulse, that culture is still here, and if it's going to arise in the rest of the world, it's going to require that it re-arises in this land. So how are we doing? Do we have some time for questions? time with Dr. David Frawley and I'm very happy it has turned out this way. God doesn't make any mistakes but I'm afraid he made one when he landed him in some other country and not in India. But that mistake has since been corrected and we can claim him as our own. Now, regarding myself, Ram Mohan is a well-wisher of mine and well-wishers tend to exaggerate, sometimes distort facts a little. He has done that and let's correct that too. Now, I'm not the hollow, but I'm no holiness as he said. And he even said that I have renounced things, I had some corporate success, some wealth to my name, uh, I have moved out of that circle, well it's a family business and uh, today the day belongs to the younger generation like all of you. Why should we grandfathers be sitting there as chairman and trying to run the show when you can do it even better? Your mood and your adventurousness, these are the requirements, they are too conservative and we, we need to move out also. So there was nothing in that, in what I did. And anyhow, a little uh, autobiographical note, not because I want to tell about myself, because it may have relevance to our having a rapport with each other, and I would like to share it with you. 
I was reasonably young. I had a brother who was two years older to me. Father had helped to start a business, and things were going well. We were small business people, but we were moving into it, and it looked like we could reach out for the stars and pluck them. When suddenly this elder brother of mine, just two years older, complained of headache, he was taken to a hospital. Then they said it's cerebral hemorrhage, and he passed away. Then I came into close for the first time, close contact with this tremendous, irreversible event that we call death. And I was there, and yes, we weep, we cry, then we dry our tears, and we go on the same way. Till once again something like that happens, somebody dies or we die, and the tragedy is there all over again. We do not seem to get determined to take hold of one such occasion. It may be great joy or it may be great sorrow, but to examine one event in its totality and try to understand things. So here, in my helplessness, standing by my dead brother at that moment. It was immensely necessary for me that I asked questions about creation and creator and the universal laws, the laws that I must obey, the freedoms I have within the laws, so that again I would not be caught so helplessly. I hated myself and I hated the creator for the helplessness I was feeling, but that was because I had never turned my mind to it. I knew a little physics, a little chemistry, a little economics. Because I had studied it a little bit and gathered some information, but when had I given even uh, half an hour to this thinking about these things? So naturally, I was caught in that situation. So then I said, I have to understand the meaning of these things. They talk about a god. So at least let me find out what there is in that subject. I think I'll come to find out that there is nothing. Then I won't have this ambiguity, you know, this confusion of uh, in that situation, oh God, uh, hey, save my brother, let him live, oh God, take care of me, what is, instead of that, I know what that God is, how I am placed in relationship with him, and we'll have a good working arrangement, never again this total helplessness. So I said, how do I learn? I don't know a word of Sanskrit, I traditionally have not grown into it, but then somebody said, there's one from Chinmayananda, who is talking to people like you, and talking in the English language, why don't you go and listen? I said, that I'll do, because that's what I'm looking for. But I'm not going to believe what he says because of the length of his beard. That's not the thing. I'm going to examine everything he says. I'm going to be honest and open, but unless I accept it, I, I will form my own opinion. So I went into, walked into a talk, I was feeling rather shy, you know, if my... Um, uh, clubmates or somebody saw me going into Agnesala, what will they think of me? <laughs> that way. So I went there and the, the talk was on, I think it was talking of Mandukya Upanishad something, I just walked into the second day's program and I said you will talk about that God, that Krishna and that uh, Shiva, the, all that thing, you know, out there, historical, temporal, but very soon I found that the talk was about me, the truth of me. And I knew that he was talking about God and he was talking about me in the same breath, in the same sentence, in the same idiom and suddenly something started to click inside here that the truth of what has been called God is the truth of myself. Then I said if there is meaning to this thing, it's too intimate, too personal, too necessary for me that I catch on to it. 
and in fact I would feel a whole life wasted if such truths were hidden inside me and I did not even have uh, the decency to try and find them out for myself when I have a chance to examine them. So I said I'll listen a little more, I'll think about it and then let me see what I was open to the subject. I seem so beautiful and so wonderful that something like that was possible, that the truth of me could be the total truth, the microcosm could uh, hold the whole secret of the macrocosm, it was wonderful. So I stayed a bit with that thought and, and as I moved into it, um, I could see that life, my inner life should be dedicated to acquiring this knowledge, not for the sake of knowledge, but because it would be everything and without it, all would be nothing at all. So that is how I got plugged into it. But here was a factory just started, a brother who passed away, a father who passed away later on. I had my responsibilities, my duties, and I went about it, my outer life of activity and doing what I should do, my inner life of being interested in this subject, because this was my real love now at that time. I'm saying this because there's no dichotomy between a successful pursuit of things in the outer world and acquiring and living this knowledge in the inner world. I am sharing this with the younger people. So <clears throat> this is how it went. So it's not it's not that my brother died, I was, uh, you know, so much such tragedy, I was so shocked, poor fellow, he became like this. It's not that at all. It is, my question was, not do I accept the death of a brother, what will you do but accept it? Within 24 hours a funeral has to take place. And then what else will you do about it? Not accept, but is there any point of view from which you can approve an event? Events are happening, they are not in our control. How far can we approve, the, approve means the rightness, the justice, the total correctness of what has happened. So whether it's a marriage, a, a death, a birth, uh, my making a million or my losing what I have, everything is an event and is there a rightness to things? What are the laws that govern the, what is the, uh, what is the cosmic constitution for the whole universe? So it was this question that we examined till we come to find that there are universal laws and we can see how we are positioned amongst the laws and then the whole mystery enlarges and opens up that the, the totality, the God idea and what's given to us already as our capital, the self, the ego sense, the I person here, these things can, are indeed, uh, they're not close, they're not, they're, they're just, a, just the same truth, only we are not seeing it. So as uh, uh, David Crowley is pointing out, Ramana Maharshi with his Who Am I inquiry, is not uh, asking us for our visiting cards, in which case we could give him our address and our email and everything else. Uh, no, but it's a question, he's not asking who are you, he's asking us to ask ourselves who am I. So this I sense that we have, this uh, this conscious voice that we have in us, suppose uh, we talk of God as total consciousness, and if total consciousness was to think of its own identity, what would be the first word of total consciousness? I, God would also have to start off with an I feeling about himself and I am doing that for myself. So what's the great difference? Except that I have limited my I sense to this body and its temporal history and its relationships 
and in the totality there would be nothing else to refer to so it would be it would be just the i without qualifications so therein lies the whole the whole uh, uh, revelation of vedantic thought the i the ego sense and the i the brahman the totality the absolute the relative here the absolute there in this relationship lies the whole understanding and this can be very purposeful and meaningful for us and we have to we have to do it out of real love for it many youngsters here are into this kind of uh, study group this great interest in this subject let us hang on to it people tell me that uh, boy you are very lucky the last 15 years i have been living near ramana ashram and um, <coughs> they say you are very lucky you have come here and found peace but if i have to tell them i have to tell them i say my friends the suitcase i packed in my place chitur i unpacked in tiruvannamalai the same contents i took my mind with me my vasanas with me my life with me so if you really are finding me happy and peaceful here it must mean that in some way i was happy and peaceful before i came here even there but why are you not able to believe it because i was running a company and i was making money i was traveling in a good car and you think that is a contradiction you can't be into that life and you can't be peaceful and happy you can't be this sort of a quiet person but that's a mistake so i did not run away from sorrow because you cannot run away from sorrow it's a little easier to run away from happiness so after i was doing my work things were going well the anger generation was there to take over so this god idea had come to me so i said oh lord you have given me you have blessed me now if you continue like that i'll continue like this so now i want to be released from here because i want to find the get the greater wealth of that knowledge therefore let me move away from this and go there so i it's not uh, it's not giving it up it's not renouncing and sitting with nothing it is there but my happiness does not depend upon it that is the, that is the thing that's real renunciation that is the attitude so in this way the younger people here will um, grow up to be successful people they will do many things they will bring fame and wealth for themselves and to that country and at the same time they will remain inwardly focused on this uh, the spirituality which has already touched you and which will bloom in your heart but today belongs to david frawley he is with us all here and i am closer i am more accessible maybe you and i can meet sometimes more easily but let us share the joy of his presence thank you can i direct your question to either of them you want any paper slips to be we are trying to prove our own version of it like we are trying to say what they say is wrong what we are saying is right so should the uh, answer be like more like uh, why should we why should this matter it should be whether uh, vedanta and buddha or what is the relevance to the history yes. 
Well, it has a significance because it creates the context in which we examine things. For example, if you look at the Vedas as the products of nomadic plunderers from Central Asia, then that gives us a certain value judgment on what they are and how to interpret them. It also has served to undermine the foundation of this civilization. In other words, the Vedic roots, the Dharmic roots, the spiritual roots of the civilization are rejected, they're seen as intrusive. There's the idea that there's no indigenous culture in this region, it's all a bunch of invaders coming in. So it undermines our perspective. The history creates the context in which the rest of the civilization gets interpreted and in which you have a certain sense of identity. So that's its relevance. Uh, Unfortunately, history has a strong political orientation in this country. In fact, as you know, being in Tamil Nadu, that this whole idea of the Aryan-Dravidian divide in ancient India has been a very important part of the politics of this state, even though now we see there's probably really no historical basis for it. And even the idea of Marxism in India turned this invasion and casting into its view of history uh, to replace the class war idea that you had coming out of Europe. And then it serves to undermine your confidence in your tradition. It develops this kind of apologetic sense we find in Hindus today. And it makes you doubt the value of the teachings. So when you look at the Rishi traditions, then you wonder, well, who were these people and why is there no, no validity for what they did or where they lived or who they are? Oh, the Puranas are also rejected. Yes, yes, J.J. is quite right. The, you have this idea that India had no history. Uh, when the Greeks came to India in the 4th century B.C., the Greek writer Megasthenes said he found a tradition of 153 kings going back 6,400 years. That was the tradition he found. Even now we have this long Puranic list of kings. In order to accommodate the Western view of history, these are said to be mythological or imaginary. Even though there's legendary mythological aspects of all ancient dynasties, whether they're Egyptian, Sumerian, Babylonian, or even uh, biblical, the Bible uh, records what? I think they record 42 kings before the time of Jesus. So you had a discrediting of the historical traditions of this country, also a lot of the spiritual traditions of the country, and you had then a blockage that was created in the minds of people to study, much less to appreciate, the ancient traditions here. Well, you have to understand we have a very secular view of history today. And so usually God is kept out of it. And usually there's an interpretation of religion in terms of social, political, and uh, economic uh, imperatives. But one thing you should also note is that view has been applied to Christianity as well. Uh, many Hindus believe that, that the New Testament is literally true. 
Jesus was born of a virgin. He was killed by, you know, the Romans. Under, he was killed according to the Jewish uh, people under Pontius Pilate and all these stories. The common biblical scholarship that's fairly well known in the West now shows that those ideas developed over a period of several centuries and that an originally Jewish mystical sect gradually got transformed into a world religion through the Romans. For example, the virgin birth originally came from the Greek word for a young girl, uh, which was then misinterpreted as a virgin. Most of the early Christians did not believe in things like the virgin birth. So there have been new views of history that have come out, and there are other approaches that you need to examine. But for the spiritual side, whether of history or anything else, you really won't find that coming out of the West, and you certainly won't find that in textbooks. Let's take a simple example of this. If we judge civilization by science and technology, or by economic development, then there's no difference in the state of civilization of a yogi living in a cave or a caveman living in a cave. In the Indian tradition, there's a recognition of the spiritual values and practices going beyond materialism where you may renounce the world. You may go back to live on, you know, fruits and berries and roots and leaves. So there is that higher view that can come in. Well, there are many there are many things that you can use. Devotion, bhakti can use any number of forms. So certainly that, that is a helpful can be a very helpful aid. Well, one thing you have to understand is that texts like Mahabharata and Ramayana were also worked over by various poets. There was a certain uh, alankar or embellishment that went on there. So there may not have literally been those particular amount of soldiers in the army or the, some of the outer details uh, that have gone on. But because there is some poetic embellishment, is no need to reject the thing altogether. That type of poetic embellishment you find in all ancient texts. It was part of the ancient tradition, which was to have an extent to, to glorify and to you know create various legends. You know, for example, if you look at Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, all kinds of fantastic things occurred then. But that's not to deny that there was no Trojan War or that uh, these events had no uh, validity. Somebody says, my, uh, my microbes can sit on the tips of a needle. Both of them you won't be able to see. 
But he says this is more scientific than is less scientific. Yes, Well, certainly on a material plane you could say that, because India historically was a very wealthy nation up to probably about 500 years ago. And presently the West is more wealthy uh, than India. But in the modern world, things also change very quickly. You already see that Asia is rising up, uh, first Japan and now China and now aspects of India are coming up as well. So that's not necessarily uh, permanent. In terms of spiritual knowledge, people still look to the East, to India, to Tibet, and to these surrounding regions. In America today, if people want to do spiritual practices, yoga, meditation, they still have to look towards the East. Even the English language is starting to pick up Sanskrit words, like if you want to get into spiritual practices, you'll talk about gurus, and kundalini, and chakras, and dhyana, and prana, and shakti, and all these other things because they've been better developed here. And even look at the 20th century. Look at all the great uh, sages and seers and yogis that have come out of India. You haven't had a Ramana Maharshi coming out of the West. You haven't had a Sri Aurobindo coming out of the West. You haven't had an Anandamoy Ma coming out of the West. Or if they did, they weren't given any recognition so that uh, it has been recorded. There is something about this culture. And to me, that's most amazing that India has produced that much spiritually in a century where there's been so much self-negativity and so much so much tumult in the country. And that's really the essential problem. People in the country here, they lack self-confidence, they're apologetic, uh, they don't respect their own traditions, they don't put them into practice. They have an almost slavish mentality about certain things. And I'll give you an example. These evangelical Christians coming from America, again, I said they largely represent the more backward elements of American society, at least on an intellectual level. They're trying to get the theory of evolution taken out of being taught in the schools, for example. And yet they come over here with so much pride and so much ego and so much vital force and so much conviction trying to uphold the teaching, which is the old hellfire and brimstone that belongs to the Middle Ages. And meanwhile, the Hindus with these great traditions of yoga, Vedanta, and everything else are apologetic and doubting and, you know. So when you have that lack of self-confidence, that lack of will, that lack of sense of self-worth, then you're easily taken in by something from the outside and you, you don't value what it is that you have. If India had put in the, into practice the teachings of Vedanta, 
which is to recognize the Atma, which is to assert the Atma, that situation uh, wouldn't have arisen. It is that mentality of subservience, appeasement. Often Hindus think that uh, they're being tolerant when they're being subservient, you know. Uh, it's one thing to respect and honor all people and all views, but you also have to hold to what is true. You know, there are certain truths. For example, the law of karma is either true or it's not. It's not that the law of karma is true for Hindus and then Christians will go to heaven or hell according to their deeds. Uh, so you also need to recognize the teachings, the truth, and you need to stand up for them or at least... Uh, understand them and be able to uh, express them. It is the rejection of Vedanta that has caused a lot of the trouble in this country and often it has been an almost excessive uh, bhakti. You know, I've noticed that when Hindus become communists, they almost worship Marx and Lenin. Even in Bengal, you can almost find shrines to Marx and Lenin. When Hindus become Christians, they become much more devotional Christians than anything you'll find in America. And when Hindus become Muslims, they become even more dedicated uh, Muslims than you'll find in any other country. That emotional devotion has its value, but you can also push it uh, too far. There should also be that uh, Vedantic principle. If the Atma is the supreme thing, then you shouldn't, we don't need to bow down to institutions, to saviors, to mere books and personalities. That kind of slavishness. You don't need to you know, you need to bow down to the truth. You don't need, if anybody believes it's a religion, that you have to then follow it and honor it and can't question it. So I think it's, it's the, it's the, it was the decline of Vedanta in this country that is behind a lot of these problems. And I don't think there's a way out unless a more Vedantic spirit arises. There are many problems in this country, but they can be solved through bringing out the characteristic civilization of this region. And a lot of these problems in India have come today from trying to adapt this communist socialist model. The type of warlord situation you have in Bihar is similar to what you had, what you had in a lot of the uh, communist countries and some of these uh, uh, Central American uh, countries. It's not, it's something that, it's a fall from Dharma that's created it. The other problem that's come in here is the lack of national and social unity. And it's not essentially a problem of the caste system so much as what I would call a jati problem. Everywhere the urges of the, the needs or the urges of the desires of the family or the region are put above the nation. So each region wants its own thing, each family wants it own, its own thing, and the Bihar, the Yadavs have the control, the Nehru dynasty wants to continue to put their person on the throne of India regardless of their qualifications or uh, state of mind. So that kind of division and fragmentation and lack of will and focus has been the problem. Well, certainly if you have foreign rulers, they're going to undermine your confidence in your own civilization because if you had any internal strength, you would, you would, you would rule yourself. The British were very, were very smart, but they also uh, did a lot of destruction. In their deviousness, they inculcated 
this type of mentality, this Macaulay spirit. Macaulay said that he wanted to create a, a group of Indians who were brown, you know, brown in skin and, and coming from this country, but their loyalty and their customs and their manners belonged to England. And to a very great extent, he succeeded. And most of these are this type of person is basically what you find in the English language media and press, particularly at the top. For example, you have this newspaper called The Hindu. There's nothing Hindu about The Hindu, and there's not much Indian about it. And then they have their magazine called The Frontline, and the editor of that, Enram, uh, is uh, one of the staunchest Marxists left. In fact, today, India is the only country left in the world where there is an active Marxist intelligentsia uh, strongly influencing the people. That intelligence, Marxist intelligence, was thrown out of Russia, marginalized in China, but it's here in power, even for some more years. They captured so many academic posts in this country. They're bound to be around for some more years. It's my prediction that communism will only survive in India as an obscure Bengali or Kerala religion. The killings of what? I didn't hear, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, oh, the grand, oh, the same. Well, this is a very curious thing to me because uh, a few missionaries were killed in India. I think what there was two. There was one, and, and, and I think that was an instance of two. You know, I've never seen an instance where the killing of one or two people has been turned into a national incident of terror. In America, uh, religious people are killed. You know, people die, people are robbed. In India, if, it's a, if a Christian is robbed, he's robbed because he's a Christian. If a Hindu is robbed, you don't care. Look at how many Hindus have been killed in Kashmir. And it's curious to note that that killing of one missionary in India has caused more outrage in the press of India and the press of the world than the killing of hundreds and thousands of Hindus and other religious groups in India. In fact, it was very strange too because at the same time hundreds of Christians were killed in Indonesia. A very interesting situation exists in the world today. There is only one large country in the world today that allows free activity for missionaries that gives them a lot of state and uh, support. There's only one country in the world that allows religious minority special government and tax favors while taxing the majority, and that is India. And you'd think for that favor, these outside religions would have some uh, respect. No, they treat you as weak. China doesn't let the missionaries in. China has its own Catholic church with its own Chinese bishop. The missionaries aren't allowed in Pakistan. They're not allowed in Bangladesh. Islamic countries keep them out. So India is being targeted because India is a soft target, not because there is a tremendous amount of religious intolerance uh, in this country. The other problem has arisen is that the missionaries target tribal people. They often go into areas where there's not a lot, where there's not a lot of law and order. And tribal society has strong family 
ties and strong sense of culture. If a missionary goes into a, a tribal region and says, particularly the, the more evangelical or fundamentalist missionary says, okay, your ancestors are all idol worshippers, they're all going to hell. It's very easy to offend people uh, in that situation. So I think when you have such a large country, uh, so much missionary activity going on, uh, that there may be some instances, but these incidents are rather small. And you should realize that there's more missionary activity going on today in India than at any other time in history. The missionary siege hasn't ended. Some other people say that, well, only 2 to 3% of the country is Christian, so why does it matter? That's sort of like saying, well, these people are shooting at us, but they've so far missed. So what does it matter if they keep shooting? And in the areas where they've been successful, like the Northeast, you now have separative movements where now these Christian-majority regions, now they want to secede uh, from India or create their own uh, separate state as per the Pakistani model. On the other hand, the Pakistanis are beginning to realize that you can build a country based upon uh, religion alone. You know, they're suffering because they have promoted a fundamentalism, and now that fundamentalism is attacking them. One of the reasons why they want all the Mujahideen to go to Kashmir is that they don't want them to be active inside Pakistan. But now they have so many, they're becoming active in Pakistan as well. Yeah. The future of Kashmir? Well, I don't have any magic uh, <laughs> magic vision. Uh, but, you know, we have this, what's essentially happening is what's the future of Pakistan going to be? Because the Taliban is so large, it's also infiltrated a lot of the Pakistan army. You know, the Taliban, which is destroying all these statues in Afghanistan, is the Pakistan-based Saudi-funded movement. The form of Islam they're promoting is the Saudi form, the Wahhabi. It's a more extreme form of the, the Wahhabi or Saudi form uh, of Islam. And it was also, to a great extent, started by the CIA in its Afghani war. A lot of the people were trained for that. They wanted to turn the fundamentalists against the Russians. They didn't realize that once they created that kind of terrorist fundamentalist base, that they would go after uh, other regions as well. So the fate of Kashmir, it depends a lot upon what's going to happen to Pakistan. But if Pakistan doesn't rein in the Taliban, then uh, Pakistan itself is going to be in severe trouble uh, in the long run. I think Dravid is essentially, it was essentially a term, for a linguistic term, right? J.J. probably knows better. South. Well, you had two things. Panchi Dravida and Panchi Gauda. But these... I'm not Indian, this is the part of the country. I know that the word Dora Nora first was used in Bengal, in the course of time. That's what you said in the meaning. That question was Dravida. People sometimes came to mean Kamala. But then it's the first to be. It's Kamala makes the time. We really do not have
But there's certainly no such thing as an Aryan race or a Dravidian race. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you have you have a, you have a the same basic culture in India. You have the same basic deities, the same basic temple worship. The other thing you should realize is Sanskrit is not a regional language. Sanskrit was a religious language that was used in different parts of the country. There were always prophets being spoken uh, by the people, and some had more some had more connections to Sanskrit, some had less. And even now, a lot of these linguistic theories are coming into question. This separation of Aryan and Dravidian languages is now questionable. Uh, the development of language is being looked at uh, uh, in a new light. Hmm. This is template Matura. You're talking about Yogya, is what you're talking about. Babri Masjid is a Yogya. No, the one that there was a temple there that has been excavated. Uh, Professor Grover has shown that, and no one disputes that anymore. There was also inscriptions taken up on there. When they found out there was a temple there, the strategy uh, changed by those who opposed it. The Marxists said that, well, how can we be sure that it was a Ram temple? When they found it was a Ram temple, they said, well, how can we be sure Ram was born in Ayodhya? Or how can we be sure that was the Ayodhya that Ram was born in? But there's no doubt that there was a temple there. And even just by the way the town is built, the temple, this is the central kind of hill in the town, and this is the place where the temples were originally uh, built, but many temples were destroyed, thousands of temples were destroyed. What is going on in Afghanistan today went on for, for several centuries in India. I remember even going to Vrindavan a few years ago, and some of the temples there, as long as I wasn't able to destroy all of them, so we just cut the top of it, cut the top of it off. Somnath was destroyed uh, three times, and in many instances you'll find, like in this uh, uh, temple in Varanasi, in this Vishwanath temple, the, the mosque still has the back wall of the temple. So that clearly went on. Now I'm not saying you have to take all those sites back, but you have to recognize your own history and, and not pretend that the temples weren't destroyed. Why are there only these big temple cities in Tamil Nadu and to some extent in Kerala and not in the north of India where you had the, a lot of the holy sites? Because they were destroyed. And we have records of the, like the Chinese who went in the 7th century, all the big temple cities they found in India, and now those are gone. Uh, 
And now they're also finding there may be some sites off the coast in Tamil Nadu five miles out. There's still some debate about them because some of the archaeologists don't want to believe that something could be out there. They don't want to believe it could be a human structure because it could then be too old or not, you know, not fitting into their view. In fact, when these Harappan sites were first found, they were actually found along a book. They were actually found some a few decades before, and they were dated to the third century BC, the time of Alexander, because they felt that you couldn't have cities before Alexander the Greek came to India. It wasn't until they had some dating techniques that they were able to discover they were 2,000 years older than that. Well, first of all, first of all, what I was saying is that that view is, is that view has basically disproved. There's no evidence of any group of people called the Aryans coming into India. There are no encampments, there's no skeletal remains, uh, there's no destroyed cities in their way, there's no antecedent uh, culture like that in Afghanistan. Uh, there's no, in fact, no one has yet, has yet been able to prove any site relating to these so-called invading Aryans. There's, precisely. There's no evidence in Dravidian literature of them being pushed to the south, having gone to the south. Uh, there's no, for example, and also in North India, the place names, like the river names, are Sanskritic as far back as you go. The Sangam literature, the oldest literature of the south, J.J. probably knows better, still has its strong connections with Krishna. So the problem is that you've been given a certain mythology in the textbooks that has kind of distorted the situation is time to correct it. There is overwhelming evidence that the Tamil race is doing a part and And all the people say that these are the Hinduism has been imported from North India to South India and the Indians have different religion also. It is totally wrong. I have pointed such a distance of the, the name of Rama in the ancient Tamil literature. The reference to a Tamil king feeding the army in the battle of Mahabharata is known as Serenjotunian Nedindyarana from Sarasi. He is the man who fed the army in the Mahabharata. He is known as Serenjotunian, the man who gave great talent to then uh, there is reference to the ability of Bhimas in India, Bhimas speaking ability. It's all mentioned in uh, ancient Tamil literature. Very interestingly, the story of Krishna, the Rastrava, and this uh, happy, is supposed to be in the tree and taking me with the source of the dating uh, Gopika. That is mentioned in uh, uh, North Indian literature. Similar story is mentioned in Sangam literature with a slight uh, difference. The story is still, the picture is still. 
For example, the, the most important ancient teacher in the Tambal tradition is Agastya. Agastya is also one of the most important teachers in the Rig Veda. And Agastya's younger brother, according to the tradition, Vasista, is in fact the most important uh, Rishi in the Veda, has the most hymns and is the most honored. There's what? Oh, the alphabet. And also we have linguistic differences in all the subcontinents of the world. Europe has certain tongues like the Finnish and the Hungarian that aren't Indo-European at all. The Middle East has all kinds of different groups. There's what these call Caucasian languages that aren't related to any other group. There's Indo-European languages. There's the Arabic and so forth. So linguistic diversity doesn't uh, disprove any cultural uh, continuity. It just shows the natural development of languages that occurs when people live in a region for a long time. Uh, yeah, I have a few announcements to make. The book, The Myths of the Eye Invasion of India, the Voice of India Publication 2030, we are unfortunately not able to get copies right now. But those interested can give uh, orders outside. Arun? We'll, uh, it's the new edition that's coming out and it has another chapter added to it. So that's why you can't get copies now. But when you do, it will be a new edition. Okay. In any case, I think you can uh, give us orders either now or later also. We'll try to get them. And hope all of you have got this list. There are a few more additions to that. Uh, one is Vedic Aryans and the Origin of Civilization, Dr. David Sali and Dr. Navarat Narajaram, 150 rupees. And India the Mother from Arvinda Ashram for 90 rupees. And Motilal Banasidas, Yoga and Ayurveda by Dr. Sali for 250 rupees. Books will be available outside the CLT. And three of the books by Siddhartha Nadreddy is here. Uh, I think he can spend time with you after the 